wonder if God will let me play a trumpet in heaven. <laughs> I don't know how to play a trumpet. But I wonder if he'll, uh, if he'll let me or if I can. But thank you, Jeff, and the orchestra, and uh, always enjoy the blessing of the music. Well, take your Bibles this evening. We're going to begin a, a new series, uh, Genesis chapter 37. We're going to spend a few weeks and take a look at, uh, at Joseph, uh, a great character, a great person in the Bible to study. And when we think about Joseph, just by way of introduction, he's part of that group in the Abrahamic covenant that we think about. You think of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Um, he is, uh, he's one of those men that's connected in that group. He was one of, of uh, 12 brothers. In fact, the tribes of Israel are named uh, after Jacob's children, which would include uh, Joseph. Now, one of the neat things about Joseph when you study the Bible, and this evening we're going to examine a couple of dreams that he had, uh, God revealing to him some things that would happen. But one of the neat things about Joseph when you study in the Bible, you find in the Old Testament types of things in the New Testament. You find pictures and foreshadows. We talked about it this morning in Daniel, the historical figure of the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes, He's a type, a foreshadow of, of the Antichrist, the one that will come in the tribulation. And so when you read the Old Testament, be sensitive to those things. Uh, there are types. And Joseph is a type of Christ. He's a picture, a foreshadow of Christ. And I give you three ways that he's a type. Quickly. Find his brethren. Well, Jesus was sent by his father find his brethren to come get those who belong to him. And so just as Joseph was obedient uh, to do what his father asked him to do, uh, go on a really a long journey. He went a long way to find his brethren. So Jesus left heaven, took on a human body, born of the Virgin Mary, and lived a sinless life. And why did he do that? To come save those who are his, to, to redeem those who are his, and call out his bride, his church. That, Joseph was rejected by his brothers. You'll find out in this story they hated him. Well, when Jesus got here, what did he discover? His brethren hated him. In fact, they gave him up to be crucified, turned him over to the Romans, and they executed him. So in the same way, Joseph was sent by his father, hated of his brethren. Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. Uh, Jesus stood and looked over Jerusalem and, and, and really with a heavy heart said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you like a, a chick does her, her little chickens under my wings, but you would not. And so his heart was broken when he came and they rejected him. Good news is when Jesus comes back the next time, they will realize the error of their ways and they will receive him. So uh, it, the best part's yet to come. And then thirdly, just as, as Joseph was sent out by his father, rejected by his brethren, Joseph was in so many terms killed considered dead. His brothers, you will know in the story, when we get there, sold him into slavery and he went into Egypt. And to them, he was as good as dead. To Jacob, he was dead. They told their father that he was slain and put blood on his tunic and showed his dad. But he was miraculously restored, was he not? Some years later, probably 15 to 20 years later, he's the prime minister of Egypt and they show up for grain and uh, discover that their brother's alive. And so he was, he was restored to them. Likewise, Jesus came sent by the Father, rejected of his own, executed. But on the third day, his Father raised him up, and he was 
restored and brought back to life. So we find all throughout uh, the Old Testament these types, and certainly we do in the life of, of Joseph. Now, in this passage, he has a couple of dreams that are going to be really popular with his brothers. Uh, they're really going to just appreciate him sharing those, and you'll see it in a moment. But Joseph, uh, the first thing I want you to see is Joseph uh, was born into a very dysfunctional family. Uh, I mean, all of us think, man, you know, our family sometimes is dysfunctional. No, 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 you got nothing on Joseph, okay? He had a very dysfunctional family. Look at verses 1 to 4. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was, a stranger in the land of Canaan. Beginning in verse 2, this is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And, he had, uh, and the lad was with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report, the King James says, an evil report of them to his father. Verse 3, now Israel, which is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was a son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. The home, Jacob's home, was uh, troubled. It was not how God designed the home to be. Uh, let me give you two biblical things that were wrong with Jacob's home, whereby we might measure ourselves as moms and dads, grandparents. First problem in Jacob's home is he had more than one wife. That's a problem. That's a serious problem. You see, God never designed marriage to be more than one man and one woman for life. But Jacob had four wives. He was a glutton for punishment, wasn't he? I mean, it wasn't just two, he had four. Now, let me remind you how this happened. When we, if you go back and read the story of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, you'll find out that Jacob loved one woman, Rachel, and he worked her dad, Laban, he labored for seven years to earn her hand in marriage. Now listen, I've heard of dowries before, and I've heard of winning over the parents, and I'm going to tell you, Miss Betty was a tough sell when I was trying to marry Sherry. It was tough. Uh, it, took me a long it took me longer to win Betty over than it did to win Sherry over. It was tough. But let me tell you what, Jacob had to work seven years, seven years, and I'll call it hard labor, okay? Seven years working for her dad to earn the right to marry her. And then you know what happened? Laban tricked him. And I'm not going to get into this because I don't know how this works, but Leah was given to Jacob, and he didn't know till the next morning. That needs some explaining, but, I, but I, we'll, we'll leave that alone, okay? The next day he figures out that the woman he married, that now is his wife, is not the one he worked for. So he went back to Laban and complained, and Laban said, well, yeah, but you know, you got to marry the older daughter first. The younger can't get married before the older, and it'll cost you another seven years. We might have had words right around there. I'm not sure. But anyway, you know the story. Jacob works, you know, basically 14 years to get the woman that he, he loves. Well, again, without wasting, a, you know, we spent a lot of time here. Basically, the woman he loved, uh, Rachel, couldn't have children. And so they go through this whole thing of trying to have children. And, and of course, Leah's having children like crazy and, and, and ends up that Rachel gives Jacob, her handmaid. 
did they not learn anything from Abraham, right? I guess they didn't, they didn't learn anything. So then Leah gives him her handmaid. And so now what you find when, by the time you hear is Jacob has children by four women. Now, we don't have to elaborate on this either, but can you imagine, you can only imagine the intrigue that must have gone on in that household. Four women with children all guarding their territory. Four women with children all guarding the best for their children over the other three women who were guarding their children. All four women vying to have, to have Jacob's favor when all along it was Rachel who had his favor. And so Rachel's children, that was Joseph and Benjamin, were the favorites. And all the rest of the wives knew that. And all the rest of the children knew that. That's a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for, for a man to have no peace whatsoever. That's a recipe for there to be constant. I, I don't know if they did the American you know, apple pie thing where in the evenings they all had supper together. Boy, that must have been something around the table, right? Uh, four wives and all their kids. But that's a situation that Joseph grew up in. Now, I was thinking about our society today, and again, we can make many, many applications of this. You say, well, pastor, for the most part, polygamy is frowned on in America and illegal in most states, and I get that, okay? But our country, polygamy is the least of our problems, okay? I mean, when it comes to marriage, that's, that's the least of our problems. In marriage today, you make all these vows before God and people, and they don't really mean it, and they aren't really serious about it. You know what I mean? In other words, oh, yeah, I'm going to love you until the end of time. Well, you know, that's in two years from now, okay? Or that's, in, that's when I get tired of you or you get tired of me or, or we disagree or we have a fight. There's never been two people who got married who didn't disagree about something. It's not about the disagreeing. It's about how you handle the disagreeing, okay? Because that's just natural. But the point is, in our society today, marriage is off, is off, the, is, you know, it's off the tracks, We've got people who, who embrace divorce as a, as a viable option every time they have a disagreement. Divorce is an option. We have people who do prenuptial agreements just in case we get divorced. Well, you really don't mean your vows. And if you're, if you're saying, I got to protect my assets because we might end up getting divorced and I don't want you to take half my stuff. I'm not sure I want in that marriage in the first place, right? So in our society, you know, open relationships and all kinds of things that God forbids. And even in our country, we've gone so far as to say that two men can get married and two women can get married. I had somebody say to me one time, you know, this is about, this is about human rights. No, no, it's not about human rights. Human rights are what God says they are, okay, because he's the creator. It isn't this inalienable right that you get to choose to do whatever you want to do because God's God and his law stands and his word will never change so the point is, we've, we've taken marriage in our society, and we've messed it up in many ways, just like God's boundaries. You say, well, pastor, you know, these men that God used, David's a good example. David had a whole bunch of wives. He had more than four. You say, well, I was a man after God's own heart. Doesn't mean he wasn't foolish. Doesn't mean he didn't go outside of God's will in the marriage relationship. You see... David, read the story, had all kinds of problems because he had all them wives. And all kinds of problems. Same as Jacob right here. So I guess all that teaches us a very important point. 
as husbands, we need to set the example for our young people about what it means to be committed to somebody. We were, uh, our son, Hunter, we went to pick him up from work the other day, and Sherry rode in the car with me. And he said, uh, he said, why are y'all together? He didn't, what he meant to say was, why did mama ride with you to come pick me up from work? Because usually I'm going to go pick him up. And my answer was, since he asked that, I said, we've been together 41 years, and they ain't going to change. So what I was trying to teach him was, look, when you find the person that, God's, that, that God gives you, and you commit, then commit. Then, then before God, take your oaths and your covenant seriously. Jacob certainly messed that thing up. And the sad part is this. When we as parents, when adults mess up the marriage relationship, it hurts the kids the most. It hurts the children the most. And so we see that right here in this family, this dysfunctional family. Now, the second thing that we see that was inappropriate in this home was favoritism. It goes without saying that if you're a mom or a dad or a grandparent, you can't favor one child over the other. You cannot do that. You cannot openly say, I love this child more than I love this child. Both children are created by God. All 12 children are created by God, however many you have. And God loves them. Now, we all know that in, a, that in the same home from the same parents, it is unbelievable how absolutely different two kids can be, how two siblings can be, how, you know, how they can be born of the same parents, and you think, what planet did you come from? I don't, you know, I don't know, did, did you, you know, are you, did you come from this family? Because I don't understand. But God created every child. And so Jacob was wrong in the way he treated his children. And what he did was create a rift between his boys, between his children, because they knew one was favored over. Now, let me ask you a rhetorical question. Should Jacob have known better? Do you remember what kind of family he came out of? Who's his brother? Esau. They're twins, right? Esau comes out first, and Jacob got him by the ankle when, they, when they're coming out, right? And God's already decided that, that, that Jacob, the younger, is going to have the blessing, not the older. But then Jacob took things in his own hands and steals his brother's birthright, and he was the favorite of the mama, and Esau was the favorite of the daddy. And what did it do to the family? Destroyed it, right? One brother wants to kill the other brother. So if anybody should have knew better, it should have been Jacob. And yet, here he is, the one through whom the inheritance is flowing down to Joseph, and he has favoritism in his family. Let me just warn us, and I mean us, all of us, as, and our children and our grandchildren, to favor one child over another will destroy the one favored as much as the ones who are unfavored. It will destroy their relationship. So Jacob made some, some terrible decisions here, and it caused a problem in his family. Now, in verse 2, we're told that the favored son is out with the brothers. And notice what happens again. It says he's out with his brothers feeding the flock, and he's with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a, a bad report about his brothers to his father. At first glance, when you read this, you already know that the brothers hate him. And so you think to yourself, Joseph, you're not helping yourself here. You're not, you're not helping your case, buddy. You, you're going to go back and tell your dad. In fact, when you first read that, you might think, he's kind of a tattletale, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's out with his brothers. 
they do something, whatever they do, and now he's got to run back and tell dad. But that's not the case. That's not the case at all. When you study the life of Joseph, which we're going to do over the next few weeks, you find out that this is a young man of integrity. This is a young man of maturity. I mean, you know later what happens at Potiphar's house, right? He gets sold in slavery. He's at Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife is throwing herself at him. And he slips, she grabs him at one point and is forcibly going to try to force him to have adultery with her. And he slips out of his coat and runs. Guys, let that be a lesson. Run, okay? What young man? I mean, he's 17 years old. He gets sold into slavery, and he's in Potiphar's house, and this woman's coming after him, and he runs away. So we already know his character is not one of, of self-aggrandization or trying to make his brothers look bad for his own good. What he's really doing here is protecting the family. Let me ask you this. What do you know about his brothers? It's not good. In fact, if you go back to chapter 34, homework. Read chapter 34. When you get, don't read it right now. Read it when you get home. Let me tell you what you're going to find in chapter 34. There's a guy in love with their sister. But he ain't from their group. And so they don't like him. So what do they do? They trick him and all the men in the city. They say, oh, before you guys can be part of us and marry our sister, you always got to get circumcised. And all the men go, fine, wonderful. And while they're healing, they go into the city and kill every one of them, murder them all. That's his brothers. That's the group he's running with. Now, here's what I believe Joseph, the reason he's keeping his dad up to tabs with the boys, because even Jacob told his boys, you're going to get us all killed because all the people that live around here are going to get together and come kill us because you guys are, are wicked. You're doing wrong. And so Joseph tells his dad, and I'm going to tell you why he's telling him, because the family reputation is at stake. Their family reputation is at stake. Their whole family is impacted by, the, by what these boys do. And so Joseph simply tells his dad, Dad, they're, you know, they're doing things that's going to bring harm upon the family. And they hated him for that. They hated him. Let me tell you why they hated him. Again, you don't get any indication in Joseph's life that he was arrogant and that he flaunted his position before them because all through his life he was humble. He did wherever he was, he did what he was told to do. They hated Joseph because of who he was. They hated him because God picked him. They hated him because he had integrity and he had maturity and they did not. It reminds us, beloved, in our Christian lives that we're part of a family, aren't we? If you're saved, you're part of a family. If you're a born-again child of God, you've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, you're part of the family of God. And you and I represent our Heavenly Father, do we not? We represent His church before a lost world in the way we live. Can we learn any lessons here? The lesson is we ought to walk with God in such a way that it honors him and doesn't dishonor him. We ought to choose the things that we do, the things we say, the places we go, the, the Christian liberties that we participate in should all be measured through what's it going to do to my testimony. Am I going to be able to witness to people? Is it going to damage my testimony? Is this thing I'm going to do or this habit I allow in my life or this practice, or this place that I hang out, or this group that I run with, is it going to bring disrespect on the name of Jesus Christ? 
I've told you this before. I get very weary as a Christian and as a pastor of people flaunting to me their Christian liberty to excuse things they ought not be doing. They want to play the Christian liberty card. Oh, you can't be legalistic. I have the, I have the right. I'm, I have, everything's legal in Jesus. Okay, Mr. Christian Smarty Pants. Can you use that Christian liberty to hurt somebody else? What's the Bible say about that? It says, no, it becomes sin when you do that. So what do we have to be mature enough to do as Christians? To allow the Holy Spirit, not the preacher, not somebody else, but the Holy Spirit to deal with our heart and put us on the path of life with the habits and the way we speak and the things we do that honor him. Because Christianity, listen to me, as Joseph pointed out here in his family, his choices weren't about him, it's about his family and who he represents. The Christian life is not about you and me. The Christian life is not about what I want and what I think I ought to have in life or where I think God ought to put me or what I think God ought to give me. In fact, God's already given me more than I ever deserve. It's about him and his glory, not about me. It's not about me. John the Baptist, the greatest example in all of the Bible. Disciples came to him and said, hey, Jesus is out there and his ministry is exploding. And all your followers are running over there to him. Now, what was the insinuation? Man, we got to do something. That church is getting bigger and this one's getting smaller. We got to do something. What was John's answer? He's got to increase and I got to decrease. That's what Christian liberty is all about, if you want to know what it's about. How can I decrease? How can I give up what I think are my rights so that Jesus can be exalted? Because my life is what? A living sacrifice daily. And I should present it, Paul said, holy and acceptable to him. So Joseph goes to his dad and he says, Dad, they're, 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 it's a terrible testimony. The things they do and, and where they go and, and the people see them. People see them. And don't you, don't you miss this? Jacob and his family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all profess Jehovah God as their God to the heathen world living around them. So what's the testimony? That's what Joseph was concerned with. Now, in the midst of all that, Joseph has a dream. Dysfunctional family, dad's favoritism, the whole mess that's going on. Look at his dream in verses 5 to 8. Now, Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. <laughs> he can't get a break, can he? Hey, you know how you are. Hey, I had a dream. You want to hear it? Sure. Notice the dream. Verse 6. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. Can you imagine the look on his brother's faces? Here's their answer, verse 8. And his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. By the way, let me point out that verse 8 was going to come back to haunt them. Shall you reign over us? Shall you rule over us? And they're saying as in like that ain't never happening. Yeah, give it about 15 years, okay? Give it about 20 and you're all going to be bound for him. 
what God was revealing here. Here's the dream. God gives him this dream of binding the sheaves. His stands up. His brothers all bow down to him. God was revealing to him in the future what was going to happen. That indeed, he was the chosen one. Now, here's what's interesting about it. Joseph is not the oldest brother. Not by a long shot. So what has God done again? God has exercised his sovereignty and said, I don't follow man's ways. I don't look on the outside. I look on the inside. And I don't need one of those other rascals who are murdering people, being the one I'm passing down the, 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 the covenant to. Now I got a young man whose heart is right, a man of integrity and a man of maturity, and he's the one I pick. And so regardless of what Jacob thought or any of his brothers thought, Joseph was selected by God to be the one to whom the covenant promise would pass. Now, let me ask you this. Why tell them? I mean, I don't know. If I, you know, I can only kind of like maybe put myself in Joseph's shoes. If I know my brothers hate me and I have this dream that their sheaves are, I don't know that I would run up to them and say, hey, let me tell you my dream. I mean, because I know, I know what the reaction is going to be, right? I know, I know that they already hate me and unless you just really want to rub it in, but that's not Joseph's nature. He doesn't want to do that. So why would he tell them? And I believe the answer is this. Joseph had a close enough relationship with God to know that God was revealing something to him. He knew it was prophetic somehow, and so he wanted to share it with the family. He wanted to tell them, hey, God's up to something. God's doing something, and I want you to hear my dream. He knew it wasn't just a, a dream that was, that was just an accident. And it teaches us another thing. When those boys said, you're never going to rule over us, and we're never going to bow down to you, what were they really saying? We don't care what God says, and we don't care what your dream says. We're never doing that. Well, I wrote in my notes a big warning right here. Be careful when we don't pit ourselves against the will of God. Be very careful. Be very careful that we're not so fixed and determined to do things our way, or I'm not doing that. And I've learned in my 60-plus years to be very careful about speaking absolutes, right? Like, I'm absolutely not doing that because guess what will happen? That's exactly what you'll be doing, right? It's exactly what you'll say. That's exactly what will happen. So these boys state in absolute facts, yeah, we don't care about your dream. We're never, we're, you're never going to have charge over us, and we're never bowing down to you. Be careful that we don't set ourselves against the will of God. You say, well, can we really set ourselves against the will of God as Christians? Oh, yeah. Maybe not that dramatically. But have you ever been convicted about something that God wants you to do, and it's not what you want to do? I have. I'm standing here. You ever get convicted and God leading in your life and moving and, and you know it? You know it as sure as the world? And you're like, oh God, um, no. No, let's don't, you know, mm, thank you very much, but no thanks. Or, or, or whatever it is God's leading you to do, we can be very much in danger of putting ourselves against the will of God. It could be as simple as this. You could be employed somewhere with a company. And the company could come to you and say, man, we're going to give you a promotion, but we want you to move to here. And when you begin to pray about it, God lays it on your heart and says, I don't want you to move. Then what do you do? Yeah, but God, if I move, I'm going to get a, the office in the corner with the window and the promotion and the money and, the, and, you know, and, and this and that and the other thing. And we make all the excuses, right? But what have we done? We've pitted ourselves against the will of God because maybe that's not God's will. Or maybe we pray about it and God says, yeah, I want you to move, but we don't want to move. We say, well, God, I'm happy where I am. I'm not comfortable. I'm good where I'm at, and I don't want to go. you got to be very careful. 
when, when God begins to move in our lives, we have to really pray and determine what it is God wants us to do. These boys set themselves against the will of God to their, to their own hurt because you know what's going to happen later. They are going to bow when Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt. Now he has a second dream. As if one wasn't enough, he gets another one. Okay, Look at verses 9 to 11. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers. Boy, he's, they hated him more and said, now I'm going to tell him again. Okay, Said another dream, he told his brothers and said, look, I've dreamed another dream. Now he's telling it this time and his dad's there. And he says, look, I have dreamed another dream and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Not just stars, but 11. Okay, He's number 12 and his brothers are 11. All right. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? So even his dad's a little skeptical. And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. The sun is his dad, the moon is his mother, and then the stars are his brothers. The exact same message in a different format. And he said, I had another dream, and the sun, the moon, the stars, they all bow down to me. Now, some things about this second dream. Number one, it's a confirmation. God is confirming to him what's going to happen. God's confirming to him the message. Has God ever done that in your life? You know, kind of like the, like the put out a fleece thing? I never, I never did the fleece thing, like God put dew on that thing, and tomorrow let it be dry. But there have been things that come along in my life, and I pray, God... I think I know what you're saying, but I'm slow, and you're gonna have to you're gonna have to tell me again. Okay, you're gonna have to show me in another. And you know what? God always does. Something will come along, and God will reaffirm or confirm the thing that He's already laid on my heart to do. And I could tell you, maybe we'll have coffee sometime, and we we'll talk about how this church got started, because it was more than twice. Okay, I mean, God will. God, if God's in it, and you're willing to listen, God will do what it takes to convince you of what you need to do, and to confirm it in your heart. So I believe this second dream was for Joseph's benefit and for his family. You can only imagine, if you had the first dream and you're Joseph, you're pondering it, you're going, well, I think I know what that means. At some point, you know, I'm, I'm, they're going to need me. At some point, they're not going to hate me, they're going to need me. And God goes, yes, yeah, a little more than that, so he gives them another dream. He says, they're all going to bow down to you, and you're going to be in charge of them, and you're going to be over them. Now, notice that his brothers, their response was not just hatred, but they envied him. That's an interesting statement here. That really pulls back the blinders of why they hate him. You follow me? It isn't just hatred because dad likes him, or it isn't just hatred because he got the coat with all the colors on it. And by the way, I didn't remark a lot about that coat because I've heard entire sermons about that coat I didn't want to do that tonight. Let me just say this. Dad put fuel on the fire. Not only did he favor him, but he gave him this coat to wear around that said to them 24-7, I'm the favored son. Again, he wasn't doing Joseph any favors, all right? That coat probably meant to the rest of them that when dad dies, he's getting the lion's share of the inheritance and we're getting what's left over because the eldest usually got the lion's share and the rest divided up everything else. And Joseph was superseding the age thing there and the hierarchy and walking around in the coat that said, I'm getting it all. It's 
So no, no wonder his brothers hated him more. But here it says they envied him. Now let's talk about that and we'll close. Envy, envy is a cancer. Envy is, envy is a cancer that brings sin to the nth degree. They envied him. Listen, when you envy somebody or we envy somebody, we want what they have, which says to God, I'm not happy with who I am and who you created me to be. I want to be somebody else, and I want to be something else, and I want something else. It is a sin of ingratitude toward God. It's a sin against the person whom we envy because God created them and put them where they are. And we're saying to God, I'm not happy that you put them there and you didn't put me there. It's the worst of sins. And it brings about a lot of other sins. Their envy of their brother, their envy that he was chosen, their envy that he's the favorite, their envy over the dreams that they obviously understand what it means, led them to murder, did it not? Led them to, listen, had it not been for God's intervention, they would have killed him. But just as God would have it, the caravan comes along and they want to make a profit. Say, if we kill him, we get nothing. Let's sell him. And then we can get some money. So not only did they want to murder him, they were greedy. And they said, we can kill, we, we can kill two birds with one stone. We can get rid of him and make some money. It's the only reason he's still alive. The point is their envy drove them. Envy will destroy the person who envies. Envy will absolutely destroy the person who envies. What's the, answer, what's the answer to envy? Contentment. Contentment with who God made us to be, with where God put us. Now, as humans, and I, I'm going to close, listen. It's easy to be envious. It's easy, if we, especially in our flesh. We, we went to Rhode Island um, a year ago when Nathan was up there. There's a road in Rhode Island, if you've never been to Newport, it's called, it's Bellevue Avenue, and they call it Mansion Row. You have no idea if you've never been there. These are not, these are not just big houses like you would drive in a neighborhood and there's a, you know, a, a, a 8,000 square foot house on a quarter acre, you know, bumped up against their neighbor. It's not like that. No, these houses, these aren't houses. These are estates. They have the brick walls, the, the gates, and the buildings are just ginormous. They're massive. I wouldn't even begin to think how much. And they go all the way down this road on both sides, and you can drive along there real slow and look at them and turn around and come back so you can look at them again, and they're beautiful. I mean, and, and where they came from, where most of them came from, if we read some of the history stuff there, is when the country was being founded, a lot of the a lot of the wealthy folks that came from England settled in that area and brought their wealth with them, and, and they built mansions, and it's passed on to their families. But my point is this. We drove down that road, and, and at the end of that road is a coastal drive that drives along the cliffs there. Rhode Island is just gorgeous. Now, we're there in the summertime. Beautiful. I suggest you go in the summertime, okay? It's beautiful, and there's houses, and we got into this game. Y'all ever do this? We did. We, we drove along there like we could have one of those. You know, like, which one would you pick? Oh, I don't know. I like that one. I think I would like that one. 
And that's okay. I mean, we're just having fun with it. I don't, I don't have enough money for them to let me on their lawn. So I don't, so there's not, there's no chance of me having one of those things, you know what I mean? And, and, and honest to goodness, they're so big, I couldn't afford the light bill or the taxes or, or, you know, even if they gave me the thing, I couldn't afford to keep it. So the point is, we drove along there going, oh, that's gorgeous, wouldn't you like to have that? And that's great. And that's okay, but you have to be careful because if your heart becomes envious of that, then, what, then what's the natural reaction of that? I'm suddenly not happy with what God's given me. I'm not suddenly not happy with the house he gave me. I'm suddenly not happy with what I have, the, the, you know, what God's provided me in life. And listen, I'll be the first to tell you, God's blessed me beyond anything I deserve. My home and, and health and, and family and all the things that I have. I don't own a mansion on, a, on the side of a hill in Rhode Island, but I own a mansion in heaven because Jesus has given it to me. But the point is, let's not be envious, okay? We see another Christian who can sing and Boy, they sing great, and we, and we think, well, I wish I could sing like that, or we wish we could play like Jeff and the musicians. Don't do that, because God's given you gifts that you can use to do whatever it is you do. And some gifts are very public, and some gifts are not very public, but they're both equally valuable. So let's learn a lesson from these boys. Their sin and the things that We learn from this passage some things about, about a dysfunctional family. Let's guard our homes and make sure that we don't allow those things into our homes. We've learned some things about envy and hatred. And the best defense against that is a close walk with Jesus and being a grateful Christian and one of gratitude before God for what we have. Because all of us have 